Well, open up your Bible to the short three-chapter minor prophet of Joel. And if you have your sheet from this morning, you can take that out and look at that graphic because we're going to be using that and just reading our Bibles as a walkthrough because that's the good thing about these short minor prophets is that we can just do what they would have done in the synagogues of Jesus' day and they would read a little bit, and then they would make comments, and they would point the people to the truth of the passage, and then read a little bit more, and so on and so forth. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, I will confess to you that I recognized, um, well, not, not that I recognized, but, uh, but on your sheet, you will see disparity. And so if you have your sheet, uh, let's look and uh, look under the top section, which is book info. And you see the author is Joel, and you see the date written. What does that date say? Around what? 835 B.C. So remember, Jer- Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. Well, if you turn over on the back and look at the graphic from our friends at the Bible Project, I know, I know everybody does not believe that I've drawn these every week. So um, our friends from the Bible Project believe that this was actually written much, much later, that Joel was uh, because there's no exact date given in the book that just from a what's called a source critical method where they read um, the books and they look for language that other books have used you can see in the upper right of your graphic that they believe Joel was somebody who was much like us that he was somebody who was reading and meditating upon all of these other prophets And out of his meditation came this word to the exiles who had already experienced the fall of Jerusalem and were now living and needing hope. And so they believe it was much, much later. And that's, that's actually a very common thing with some books of the Bible, that we can't put our, our finger exactly on a date of when it was written. And that's okay, honestly. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, make it difficult for us to believe the, the, the integrity of the text itself. And in fact, the view of the, the Bible Project folks on the back where they, they see all of this language uh, from Malachi and Obadiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Nahum and Isaiah and Amos, um, they actually, uh, that actually helps us understand something called the analogy of faith, that, um, that the first place that you should look when you see language in the Bible is you should look to other places in the Bible where that language was used. And that helps you understand more of the author's intent of using it. And so uh, it's very helpful to see a lot of Joel's language is coming from other books because it helps us recognize what we do as well. Uh, we, we don't concoct or create meaning on our own for the text. We look in the text and we study the text and we come over the text. And we, if we really want to know it, we dig into the text. And sometimes that means looking, or often that means looking at other places in the Bible, how language was used there, and arri- not creating our own meaning to words, but arriving at the same meaning that those other people, um, the, the reason they use those words. And so um, the, 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 the information on the front kind of uh, points to maybe Joel being a contemporary of Elisha and Elijah. The information on the back points to Joel being somebody much later being a contemporary of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah uh, later. In, in. And that's really part of the, uh, the beauty of Scripture is that um, 
There are a number of faithful interpretations to the text of Joel. And we're going to primarily focus on the the one from the Bible Project tonight because I see it as having more validity, which is what we're we're called to do is is weigh out these decisions. And so all we know about Joel is what's mentioned in the first verse. Look at it. Uh, Joel chapter 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Okay, that's all we know. Uh, There was a man named Joel, and Joel had a message for the people of Israel. Now, what's unique about Joel is that Joel does not call Israel out for any specific sins, which is why the people from the Bible Project think that Joel was writing after all of those things had already been said. It's kind of like they already know what's wrong, so there's no need in exacerbating and, 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 and con- continuing to bring up the problem because everybody knows what the problem was. The idolatry of Israel, all of that, that was the problem. And so uh, Joel is writing from, in their opinion, a worldview that has already endured the exile. Now, it's really interesting for us how uh, significant events in our lives shape our worldview, Right? Uh, for Israel, we said that the most uh, that the two most uh, significant events in their history were the deliverance from Egypt and then the exile that happened in these pages. Right, e- everything uh, from that point forward, including this thing that we saw last week with the idea of Babylon. Uh, being not just that nation on earth at that time, but becoming a representative of the evil nations that would be in the future as well, that God would one day destroy. That, that in that way, those events shaped the perspective of every Jew leading up until Jesus' day and after even into our day. And we see that because they celebrate these feasts and these fasts. And they talk about um, the, uh, they, 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 they celebrate Passover to specifically point to uh, that time when God delivered them from Egypt. And so it shaped their perspective about everything. The same way that our, our perspective shapes everything about us. I mean, we have holidays to commemorate big events that happened in America's past, right? So that, first of all, we won't forget them. Secondly, because we recognize the impact it made on us and how it shaped us. And so... What's funny is my mind was immediately drawn to the fact that in the establishment of America as a nation, we actually drew upon Israel's history and the biblical imagery that they used in something that that we learned last week um, from uh, from the book we did last Sunday night uh, in Obadiah. We learned about the day of the Lord, right? And so see if this sounds familiar. Mine eyes have seen the coming, or seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So the Lord's coming, his day. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He says, He has sounded, this is the third verse, He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never sound retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. O be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. And I actually skipped over the, the, the second verse. Let me read it. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. 
So just from that one phrase in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which is, has its roots in the Revolutionary War, right, we see that the uh, American soldiers and at least uh, Julia Ward Howe, who wrote that hymn, had in her mind that what God was doing through the American patriots of that time, or they were, they were actually traitors, uh, if you looked at it from the British perspective, what God was doing was, uh, and you, you even read this language in the Declaration of Independence, was that he was bringing a lowercase d, day of the Lord, that was executing judgment upon a tyrannical British government, Right? And that the idea of freedom, religious liberty, uh, of soul freedom, the freedom to worship, that all of those things were rooted in Scripture and being rooted in Scripture, that they were actually pursuing the Lord's cause and bringing judgment and justice upon Britain. And it was that faith that really caused them to endure through some of the most horrific uh, battles. I mean, you, you read about those, just the things that they endured. And so it shapes us even to this very day, and we remember it because we want it to continue shaping us. That's, that's what Israel's going through. That's what Joel is pointing to, because Joel chapter 1, even though he doesn't mention it by name, Joel is actually what he's doing, you see it in your graphic, in chapter 1, he's meditating upon a past day of the Lord in chapter 1, so that he can announce the disaster and call to repent for a future day of the Lord. And so let's look at this past day of the Lord that, he, that he's looking at. Uh, verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping lo locust is eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So obviously something's going on with locusts, right? Now what in the Old Testament happened that involved a swarm of locusts? The plague, right? Once again, that deliverance from Egypt and how God did that shaped everything about the, the Jewish worldview. And so he's actually remembering uh, by way of meditation how God dealt with Egypt. And what he's saying is, is that that swarm of locusts from Exodus chapter 10, the eighth plague, what, what was actually happening was that God had designed things to be a certain way, but sin had broken that design. And so God's judgment was coming upon, comes upon people. We see this in Genesis 3. God ju God's judgment comes upon people to actually try to be a corrective to push them back towards God's design. We say this often, that when you choose to, ch to sin, you choose to what? Suffer. So you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. The reason God has done that is because he loves us as his creation so much that he doesn't want us to think that there's life down the roads of sin. And so he has created suffering so that when we choose wrong actions that we're pushed away through that suffering. That's what's called the passive wrath of God. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. But there are some days lowercase d, days of the Lord, where God sends his active wrath upon individuals or upon nations so that he can point them to the grievousness of their sin. So the passive wrath of God is meant to be a goad, a, 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 a poker, if you will, to say, don't go that way, don't go that way, don't go that way. The guilt you feel on the inside, the brokenness that you feel in relationships, the, the way your conscience just plagues you when you sin, that, that's the passive wrath of God. The active wrath of God is when that thing that you've been doing results in the brokenness of your marriage, right? Or going bankrupt or whatever 
the the big time result may be because um, I think it was C.S. Lewis compared sin to a cancer. That as long as you're alive, what does cancer do? Keeps going and going and growing and growing until it consumes everything, right? Sin's the same way. Sin's the same way. As long as it's given room, it will grow and consume and ultimately can lead to death, right? And this is, this is why understanding, the because this will come in definitely towards the end of the chapter, end of the book, I mean, in chapter 3, chapters 2 and 3, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of 3, is that God's design leads us, when we meditate upon creation, right? When we meditate upon creation, we understand how God intended for things to be. When we meditate upon, upon the fall, we, we see how sin has taken the beautiful design of God and how, how he has interwoven all of creation and see that sin unravels that design. And there are, there are tragic consequences to that idolatry or to that unbelief. And so God sends his judgment not as a lightning bolt from the sky just to, just to, to destroy human beings, he sends his judgment to point us back to his beautiful and good design. And so that's exactly what's happening as Joel remembers what God did to Egypt. But the call to repentance comes in the latter part of the chapter because God is not sending or has not sent this invasion of locusts that devour everything before them. He's not sent that on Egypt in these days. Who's he sent it upon? Israel. His own people. And look at chapter 2. And specifically look at, at, at verse 2. It says, A day of darkness and gloom basically is coming. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful, not insect, but people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. He's saying that the day of the Lord... For, for Egypt, I mean for uh, Israel, has involved Babylon coming like this great and powerful nation to devour Jerusalem. And who can endure it? And so why should they repent? Because look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, you're, you're probably very familiar with the Jewish uh, custom of grieving or repent, that accompanied repentance. Uh, they had interesting ways of displaying, external ways of displaying internal emotion. So, uh, you know, we see people jumping up and spinning around seven times and throwing dust on their head, or we see very often uh, people ripping their clothes. So like the high priest, when Jesus uh, declares that he is God, he, he rips his clothes as a way of showing that, that he is, he's torn on the inside, right? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that that had just become something that they did. It had become ritualistic. It was, a, it was all for show. And so Joel says, guys, God's not, he's not fooled by your, by your rending of your garments. I mean, you might have a closet full of torn clothes at home, but God still sees that you're not repenting, that you're not really repenting. You, you, you need a repentance that comes from the heart. 
And you need to return to the Lord, he goes on to say, the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind for him. Joel here emphasizing the fact that God is not, when repentance happens, that God is not just one that brings mercy, but he brings grace. And I hope you know the distinction between the two. Mercy, right, is not getting what you do deserve, right? So you deserve for the locust to come and devour, but because you have repented, the locusts have stopped. That's mercy. But grace is that he would leave a blessing behind from behind him now you are getting what you don't deserve the good things of God that you don't deserve and if we repent who knows if he would not just give us mercy but give us grace so blow a trumpet in Zion verse 15 says and consecrate a fast call a solemn assembly gather the people consecrate the congregation assemble the elders even gather to the children, even the nursing infants, and let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? And so the idea is, is that Joel is calling upon the people of Israel in the midst of their exile to repent, remembering what he did to Egypt, remembering what he's done in Babylon, and now saying, if you repent, he will bring you back. And that's what we, why we say it's about creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. And so Joel points forward to this restoration, this little r, restoration, the restoration of Israel to be back to repair Jerusalem, right? And he points them to the restoration that will happen one day after the big D, day of the Lord comes, the final judgment when Jesus returns. He points them uh, to the great restoration that will happen. And here are some of the things that will happen. And look on the right-hand the right side of that graphic if you got it. Uh, first of all, and these all correspond to places in, in chapter 2. That's why there's kind of little open doors leading to these things in the, in the little graphic, which I love about the Bible Project. They really help us see the, the way that these things connect. And so chapter 2, verse 27. Start, let's start from the bottom. In chapter 2, verse 27, what, is, what does it say? It says, uh, or verse 28, I'm sorry. 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servant in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so once again, some of this is, and you see that they've mentioned how he's quoting Isaiah 32 and 44 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, which is, you'll hear that next week. But Joel is pointing forward to this reality that God is not just going to give his law to be an external corrective among, upon, upon the people, but he's going to put his spirit inside of them and the spirit of God is going to build them up 
and make them into a kingdom of priests and prophets of God. And we, we know that this happened when Jesus came, right? And when Jesus came and he ascended upon high, he tells us in John 14, 15, and 16 that he's going to leave with us his spirit, that the spirit of God will come down and begin to build the kingdom through the church, right? And that's where the book of Acts, which I can't wait to get into, and the New Testament, that's where all of that takes place. And so that's part of the restoration. But look, there's more. Go to the top. The defeat of the invaders, right? There's an already not yet here at play that in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that God says that he will confront the evil among the nations. Chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. And so what's happening is, is there's an already in our day that has come because the spirit of God is, is among us. And it is pressing us towards this great and awesome capital D day of the Lord that's coming that that uh, will will begin when Jesus comes again, and there will be that judgment that takes place. And once again, this is where all of those eschatological views come into play. And I, I don't really I don't really get into all of those systems, but the fact is that Jesus is coming back. And then judgment's coming, right? Because we know from John chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus came once to offer his life as an atonement for sins, but then when he comes again, he's not coming to die on a cross. He's coming with a sword. He's coming, he's coming to judge the nations and separate them in between, into the sheep and the goats. And so he will confront evil among all the nations. And he will restore the land that has been devastated by renewing all of creation. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. And so you shall know that I am the Lord, the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion on my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, or grape juice if you're a Baptist, and the hills shall flow with Okay, no laughter in that? Okay. I'm just seeing if y'all are awake. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and the, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water at the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And so he's talking about a day, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, when the lordship of Jesus will be a reality over all creation. All people will see it, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the old heavens and the old earth will be put away, and a new heavens and a new earth will come. And at that point, God's presence will be a reality for all people. It will be a reality for all people. For those who are in hell, it will be active wrath. For those who are in heaven, it will be personal presence. Which reminds us why the Spirit of God is at work within us here and now. Because the mission now is not winning people to a premillennial dispensationalist view of the Bible, right? The goal now is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved from the wrath of God. And so for us, this has just a a few implications that I want to emphasize and will be done. First of all, let us remind ourselves of the deadliness of sin. 
Locusts were a, a horrific thing. In fact, one of the most recent accounts that we can point back to is in 1915 in the area of Palestine. And they said that the swarm of locusts, of flying locusts, came so heavily that it darkened the sun. I mean, it just... And as they came, they landed in an area and they burrowed about four inches deep and they laid about 100 eggs apiece. And they said that the baby locusts, they came out on the land... And they couldn't fly yet, so they were like three-inch grasshoppers and just kind of pounced around and ate everything. And they would move a little, a little distance, and they would eat, and they would move a little bit more, and they eat. They said it looked like a nuclear holocaust. So they just devoured everything. These are the images, along with all the other plagues and all the other things in the Old Testament, these are images of the impact that sin has, has upon us, the devastating effects of sin. And so, like we prayed for Mr. BJ, we don't, we don't say, oh, cancer, how joyful, right? We say, kill it, right? Kill it, get it out, get it out, whatever you need to do, get rid of it. And in the same way, sin, we must deal with sin in the same way. You've heard the illustration, but it bears repeating, probably one of the most poignant illustrations of uh, how they kill wolves in Alaska, Anybody ever heard that illustration? How they kill wolves in Alaska. So wolves are predators that mainly feed upon seals, right? And so if an Eskimo wants to kill a wolf, then he will take uh, the blood of a seal and he will uh, dip the blade of the knife in the uh, blood of the seal and then he'll let it freeze. And he'll do that, repeat that process several times over so that the, the knife has a really thick frosty coating of blood over it and then they'll take it out and when they have a problem with wolf they want to kill the wolf they'll take it out and they'll bury it with the blade pointing up out of the ground they'll bury the handle in in the in the snow or the ice and that wolf much like a shark will smell that blood and he'll be attracted to that knife and he'll come and he'll begin to lick it and what does he taste he tastes that very familiar seal blood and he'll lick it and he'll lick it and he'll lick it and he'll become intoxicated with the taste of that blood until until he his tongue's his tongue is numb because of the cold and he's loving what he's doing and so he gets down to that blade and what happens he cuts himself it lacerates his tongue to where now he doesn't realize it because he's become so blood drunk that his the blood he's actually tasting is his own and he eventually bleeds to death and it kills him Right? What we don't realize about sin is that ingrained within our temporary love or flings or whatever you want to call them, sin, are the seeds of our own destruction. That as we partake of it, it like locusts devours things in our life. It devours relationships. It devours churches. It devours leadership positions. It devours businesses, it devours schools, it devours everything, just like the locusts. There will be nothing that will not be touched by it. And that's why repentance is not just some external act, but it is an internal rending of the heart and a brokenness. Time on your knees before the Lord crying out to Him in repentance. But hoping in the fact that 
God is a God of mercy who brings hope as we repent. And with the hope, He promises restoration. Not just mercy, but grace. And this is the gospel in which we place our delight. These are the things that as we pray each day that we remind ourselves, right? I mean, just even, even think about the Lord's Prayer. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you actively pray the Lord's Prayer often, not as just some ritual, right? But just think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about how it contains all of those elements, right, of the, the character of God, the purpose of God in your life, the worthiness uh, and the faithfulness of His provision for you. And then what, what do you say to Him? And lead us not into temptation, right? God, keep me from going down those roads that sin just entices me to come down because I know that will only lead to my own destruction. Lord, help me, help me to, to, to put my fingers in my ears and like Joseph, run away from that. Lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake, Lord. Because I want to live for your glory, for your kingdom. Let, let, that, be, let that be a way of, first of all, reminding yourself of gospel mercies that Christ died to provide for you. But let it also remind you of the reason that you live. Friends, we are in a day and age where, where we are called to live for things that are not worthy of our time. And yet we... We give ourselves over and over and over, and, and they're not eternal. And so we must be careful. The gospel mercies will lead us back to a place where we hope in the Lord. And that restoration will become a reality. That renewal will become a reality in our lives, and it will be a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. And so, so just to recap... Joel talks about a past day to look to a future day. And that when there is repentance, God responds with mercy and grace. And it's a foretaste of the mercy and grace that will come. That's what God's spirit is inside of us to do. And Joel, being a prophet of God, writes to us like so many of the other prophets of God to give us hope. Hope in a coming day. But also hope that the little days of the Lord that we may experience that we may experience, that they will not be forever, but they will actually be events that shape our confidence that God can be victorious even when our sin is the problem. And just to, just to give you an example of that, so the Bible Project guys have a podcast um, that, uh, that they do, and it's, it's really just, I don't know, it's, it's probably for Bible nerds, um, like because I'm one of those and so uh, anyway so they are talking and they're trying to help me because I'm listening to this and they're talking about the day of the Lord they're trying to help me understand um, I act like I've got a personal relationship with them I don't uh, they're talking and people listening are they're trying to help them understand the day of the Lord right and a little d day of the Lord versus big d day of the Lord and the role of Babylon in the day of the Lord because Revelation brings Babylon back into the mix right I mean, and so it's like, is Babylon like physically present or is it, is it in an archetypal image, uh, you know, and, and they, they lean on the archetypal image, uh, because they, they put it this way. Uh, Tim, who is the guy who narrates all the videos, uh, he actually goes and he talks about the fact that, uh, his dad always told the story and I forget the guy's name, but it was a guy who bullied him when he was a kid. He'd fight him on the playground and, you know, beat him up. And as Tim's dad grew, 
that he recounted the story often to his kids, not as a way of wallowing in self-pity, but in, and he was a, he was a pastor, uh, but in, as a way of saying that, uh, like a, a reminder that the things that he faced in his life were just other versions of that same bully. And, and that, in that way, he would kind of like bolster his strength, you know, that victory could come. And we do this, right? I mean, you go to any college football game, and what do they do right before the game starts? They play all of these memories, you know, of past victories, right? Or if you're an Alabama fan, they just hold up the last national championship trophy or, or something like that, you know. But why do they do that? Because they want you to have faith that victory can happen. Friends, that's why we've been given the Old Testament. That's why we've been given the Minor Prophets. Victory can happen. But even more than that, because God knows the future, he's not surprised by the present, redeems the past, knows the future, he's actually telling us that victory not only can happen, but victory will happen. And it's in that that we should cast our hope and our delight. And that's why, they wrote, and that's why Joel wrote his book. And so with that in mind... Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed tonight.